For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? Well, first of all, I'm celebrating the fact that COVID is slowly but surely leaving me. Uh, this is the face of COVID. This is the face of a quarantine man. Uh, I was The reason we're doing the show earlier today was originally tonight uh, I was going to be seeing Kurt Peterson, uh, who, of course, has been one of our, our sponsors this past few weeks, uh, tonight at Merkin Hall. And unfortunately, uh, COVID knocked on my ugly door, and uh, I have not been able to get out and go see anything. Uh, for the last two years, I worked on these events celebrating today, by the way, is the 122nd birthday of Helen Hayes, the first lady of the American theater. And I worked on getting her home uh, designated a literary landmark, which happened this weekend, not just me, but with a full team of people, uh, started by Joel Vig and Joyce Boulevard. Uh, all of the events that I had worked on for two years, I have not been able to attend any of them. Uh, so it's been with great trepidation that I have not been able to do that. Uh, for three days, I was bedridden and not even able to be perpendicular. Uh, but it takes a great man in show business to pull me out of bed. And I know that in this business, a lot of people are trying to get people in bed. Uh, but uh, this man right here got me out of bed. And that's Dan Goggin. And I am such a fan of Dan's. And I don't know if I've ever, ever told you this story, Dan. But my husband, Danny, and I, the very first date that we ever had, was to see nonsense. No kidding. So uh, I we uh, we've been together since the day we met. We met Memorial Day weekend, nineteen ninety, and the day after we met, a friend of mine called who was the house manager uh, at uh, the, uh, the Douglas Fairbanks Theater, and he said, "I have two tickets tonight for Nonsense," which of course was the hottest ticket off Broadway at the time. And he said, would you like to go tonight? And we went. That was our first date. And we're still together all these many years later. So uh, I think uh, a little nonsense magic has uh, rolled over on us. Yeah, you know, it, it, it has that magic with people. It, <laughs> it is actually funny with all the different companies, how they stay together after the show. I mean, you'll, you'll hear them say, oh, we did nonsense last year and every... You know, every other week we have a, the nuns have a movie week in that. But I have to tell you something when you're talking about celebrating Helen Hayes. Nonsense was the last show that Helen Hayes ever saw. Wow. At, at Westchester Broadway, because she would go there a lot to see shows. And we were playing up there and we have a picture of her with the cast. And she said she never laughed so hard in her life. And so it was it was really wonderful to feel like that you're this first lady of the theater came to see us. And we always said, you know, after after that, she had passed away. And, and we said after she saw nonsense, she just felt there was nothing left. It couldn't top it. So uh, but we were we were very proud to, to have somebody that fantastic and wonderful 
to come and see the show and enjoy it and, you know, come back to talk to the girls and have the pictures and all that. It was very fun. Well, I got a picture that I'm going to share with you. I don't know that if you've ever seen this picture or not, but speaking of Helen Hayes, when Nonsense played the Helen Hayes Theater here in Nyack. Right. <clears throat> excuse me. There it goes. Um, we went to see my dear friend Dodie Goodman in the show. And uh, Dodie, in that particular production, I know that she played various roles, didn't she, at other times? Originally, she played Sister Amnesia in the first national tour because, you know, the, the tour producers had hired her. And um, after we had done that tour, which she was wonderful, um, but I said to her one day, I said, when, how would you like to be Mother Superior? And she said, I always wanted to be Mother Superior. And uh, ever since then, every show that we did, um, she was Mother Superior and just fabulous. She's the only actress we ever had who could walk on the stage and get a laugh with the line, are we ready to start? Well, you know, the, the, speaking of which, I mean, she, uh, as a Mother Superior, uh, and you'll fill in the blanks, um, she had a song uh, which told about how the order ended up in Hoboken. Am I getting this correctly? Right, the difficult transition song, yeah. Yes. So she says to the audience, you're going to be quizzed at the end of this song. Uh, I would try to do my Dodie impression, but I'm afraid I'll start coughing. Uh, you're all going to be quizzed at the end of this song, so please uh, pay attention. And she started to sing the song. This was one of the first previews of the show, and she forgot the lyrics. And she started, you know, just going on and the rest of the cast are standing behind her and they're just standing there doing their thing. And she said, is somebody going to help me? And <laughs> I have never laughed so much in the theater because here she is supposed to be doing this song where we're all going to be paying attention and learning about them. And she is not remembering the lyrics. And it was the funniest. She made this a three ring circus. But I want to show you this picture uh, that I pulled up just for you for today. Here it is. Look at that cast. Oh, my God. Yes. There's Terry White. There's Lynn Tucci. Right. Um, is that Christine Johnson in the back? Yes. That's Christine, Christine Johnson. Well, I forgot that she was in that production. Jean Tinker. Um, and... Let's see. I'm not sure who. I'm so terrible with names. Oh, it's I should know the other two, but maybe they were just people, uh, you know, part of the show or musicians. It was such a phenomenal cast, uh, you know, but I mean, there have been productions all over the world. And I know that, you know, because of our close friendship, that uh, at the end of Dodie's life, uh, you got her and Georgia Ingle uh, together. Uh, to film some uh, promos. Um, you and I both know, with all due respect to uh, Dodie and her fans, that she was really not in the best of shape at that time. Right. But you gave her something to look forward to, and she was so thrilled about that. Yeah, and it, I, Dodie and I had just become such close friends, and, you know, she just, she lived four blocks away from me. And so if anybody came town for a visit um you know friend or something like that and and i would say uh, do you want to have lunch with a star and they would say oh yeah and i say dodie um 
you know, so and so is in town, and 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 they they want to have lunch with the star. You want to go to lunch? And she goes, "Are we going to the Happy Burger?" <laughs> <laughs> I can hear it now. She uh, loves the Happy Burger, and um, yes. and she would say to them, "You know, I'm the neighborhood celebrity." <laughs> so she was. I mean, she was hilarious. And the first I ever knew of her uh, was on Mary Hartman. And uh, um, which I thought she was hysterical on that. And sometimes she would call me up and she'd say, Danny, are you still good doing imitations of me? <laughs> and I, I said, oh, yeah. And, she, and then she called Leo Carasone, one of our musical directors. And she, she, said, <laughs> she said, Leo, this is Dodie. And Leo thought it was me. <laughs> he started laughing his head off and she kept saying what's so funny he didn't know what to say and he said oh something just happened out, outside I saw it out the window but the, she was she was not only hysterical she was very knowledgeable about how hysterical she was and she always had you know a real blue side to her oh um, it blew in the in the sense of of you know very off colored stories. Well, there are stories that I'll share with you off camera. Yeah, that, I mean, we had a dinner one night, and she said something, and my Danny was drinking a, a glass of wine. He did a perfect spit take right across the table because it just came out of nowhere, and it made everyone at the dinner table just practically fall off of our chairs. Oh yeah, no, she was she was like that, and uh, um, and you know she could she would do it on purpose. Of course, the funny thing about Dodie was I had Dodie in many many shows, and I had um, Alice Ghostly in many shows. And the thing that amazed me about them both of them, and I adored them both, um, and they did things together too, which and mm -hmm. would be they would tell me these stories that were hilarious, but. Um, she she said uh, when when I would know the, the both of them, um, Alice was what you saw on television or anywhere in real life. That was Alice. She was she was wacky funny, and I, I don't know how many people remember her on Designing Women. Oh my God, Bernice! That Bernice, yeah, and Bernice. Bernice did not act. She just said the lines because that was Alice. I mean, she was exactly like that and would keep you in hysterics. Dodie, on the other hand, you, also Alice would be like, she called me one time from when she was playing in the show in Boston and she said, oh, Danny, you have to help me. And I said, what? She said, they got me in, they, they got me in an apartment. I can't be in an apartment. I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to clean. I don't know how to do anything. I have to be in a hotel. And so they moved her to, to a hotel. And this this is what she was like. You know, Dodie would have been who the one who would call and say, oh, you know, I, I couldn't work in that apartment until I moved to a hotel. Here's where I am. And she was she was very sharp with the stock market. And she would call me sometimes and say, Listen, I'm, I'm, you know, watching the ticker on Channel 15, you know, CNBC. 
And she said, if you got money in here, you know, you need to move that because I'm, I'm watching it. It's not good. And, and, uh, so she was, she was very, very savvy. And um, she said one time that I think it was on the Jack Parr show. She said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, all you have to do is talk. <laughs> and and uh, because there was something about her that was just. Well, she ended up getting more fan mail than he did. And he got jealous. And one night he was telling a story. And she cut him off with a laugh that got the entire audience hysterical. And at the end of the evening, he fired her. And he got so much hate mail. Uh, where is she? Bring her back. Bring her back. Bring her back. But by this time, she had been, you know, everybody in Hollywood wanted her. Everybody on the stage wanted her. And she got all these offers and she was ne- she was not coming back. She got exactly what she needed from that show. Right. And I don't know if you know the story, but she got the job because she she was very uh, very smart. She found out that he was looking for a secretary, but she went in and made up this whole story about a family that never existed and told these funny stories. And he was falling. He was crying so much. He said, I got to bring you on the show. And he just brought her on the show. And all she did was sit there and start talking. Yeah. But that's who she was in real life. Oh, yeah. And I mean, just boy, if, if you wanted to have a fun dinner, you just had to have Dodie, you know, come come to dinner. And she she really was like that. Just so much fun. And uh, she she's one that I, I really miss. Not only because she was so much fun in the show, but just just because being a neighbor, you know, I could just call her up. And we'd we'd go anywhere, do anything. She she's always game for anything, and uh, just just such a a good hearted soul. Well, speaking of game for everything and a good hearted soul, I want to talk about you. Um, so you grew up in Michigan, am I correct? That's right, little town called Alma, um, which was actually a pretty n- nice place because it was a college town. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, nice mix of people. And and many people don't realize that Alma, Michigan, was the largest mobile home manufacturer in the world. And in the Lucy and Desi our, uh, long, long trailer, that came from Alma, Michigan. And we had the very trailer in front of the Strand Theater on Main Street <laughs> when the movie came out. Um, but the the mix of people was was wonderful. Of course, everybody you know as you grow up, you can't wait to get out of there. But when I look back, growing up where you had you had college people and professors, you had f- farms around us. We got our milk and ice cream and everything from the local cows, and you know, and in our high school, you just had every kind of kid. Um, and we could also do things with like take uh, like I could take music classes at the college when I was in high school. They would let you do that, or the teachers would teach you on Saturdays. So it was a great place to grow up. So I mean, speaking of which, I mean, I didn't realize until I started doing a little research that you started out as a singer. Oh yeah. Now I, when you uh, when where did that come from? Did you sing in the church? Uh, speaking of nonsense, is that where that began? Uh, where did the singing begin for you? The first thing was, well, I was in the high school choir, but in the church, I I loved 
organ music. And my mom once said, if I took piano lessons and got good when I was quite young, that maybe they would let me play the organ at the church. And, and I did, and they let me, but you had to sing because back then, and many people today, I tell they can't believe it. We had two high masses, sung masses, every single day, one at 7.15 and one at eight o'clock. And, you, you know, you sang all the music in Latin, and this was standard every day. And I did one at 7.15, one at eight o'clock, and then I went to high school. And I got I got a dollar a time, and so for doing two, I got two. And in the beginning, they wouldn't let me play on Sundays because they had somebody else for Sunday. So I got $12 a week when everybody was making 50 cents for making their beds, you know? <laughs> so, But it was a great experience. But what they discovered when I was in high school was that I was a countertenor. And when my voice changed, the top never left. I could sing up to the sky. And so I started studying voice at the college. And when I came to New York, I came here completely as a singer and um, thinking that I was going to be in, uh, you know, the Pro Musica Antiqua was a famous group at the time mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And as a total fluke and unplanned, a friend called me and said, you know, I saw in the show business paper, they're looking for a countertenor in the for the Broadway show Luther, the play by John Osborne with Albert Finney. Mm -hmm. And and I said, oh, my, you know, that sounded great. So I back then, you know, of course, you have brass balls before you knew anything. That's right. And I just called David Merrick's office and I said, you know, I understand you look for a countertenor and and uh, and I am. And uh, so it was Linda Otto, who later became a movie casting director. She was the casting director for Merritt because everybody had it, everything in-house, you know, casting and marketing and all that. And uh, she said, oh, she said, you know, I think it's all cast. And she said, wait a minute. No, she said, they've got their last callbacks this afternoon. And if, if you want to come in at two o'clock, I'll put you on the list. So I said, that's wonderful. And um, not knowing anything about the protocols or anything. And I auditioned on the stage of the St. James Theater. And I came in because by then I was in, I had been in Manhattan School of Music. And uh, they, I said, I can sing for you, uh, um, Look to the Rainbow or a little Italian art song. And they said, sing the little Italian art song, which is called Ochasate di Piagarmi. And, and I sang it and they liked it and they asked me some questions and stuff and said, thank you. And I left. And back then I didn't even have an answering machine. And the next day I called the Merrick office and they said, oh, we've been, we've been trying to get a hold of you. Um, <laughs> you got the job. So I was 19 years old in a Broadway show starring Albert Finney and directed by Tony Richardson. And I mean, I, I had no concept really. I mean, I was, I, I told somebody I was so excited. I had a headache for three days and uh, I was jumping up on the bed and all that. And I, I was new in New York, so I didn't know a lot of people to call. <laughs> and and uh, 
But when I went in, I had never had never been in a play in 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 school. I told somebody the only play I had ever been in was in second grade when I was a shepherd in the nativity play, and I had one line: "Oh, what a beautiful baby." <laughs> <laughs> That was my line, and um, and that's all I'd ever done. I mean, I had done a little bit of concert stuff, you know, singing countertenor and concerts, but that was it. And well, you had the confidence, obviously, at 19 years old. You called the Merrick office. You get into the show. Right. Uh, so, did you have the discipline that at that age uh, for what it took to be in a Broadway musical or in a Broadway show? I should say. I think I would I would say I I I learned it every day because you know I was the youngest one in the company and there was only one person in the company that kind of resented me for being in there who had been somebody who'd struggled a long long time and here he was in the basically the chorus and uh, <coughs> excuse me so anyway um I mean, I knew I knew things like, you know, you had to be there on time. You had to sign when you're supposed to. You had to do what they told you, that kind of thing. And I was very good that way. Um, but in terms of, you know, like studying things, I just learned what they told me to learn. And I did what they told me to. And, of course, I played like 14 parts mm -hmm. um, as well as other people doing the same thing. But I realized later, as I, after I'd been around for a while, there were things that I would either not have known how to handle. For the one example I always remember is, there was one point where I played King Charles and I loved it because Albert Finney had the bow to me. And um, I came on with this huge coat, all fur around the neck and a crown and everything. And a fake wig uh, for the like the boy king, and I walked on the stage, and all this music played, and and then we they had because there wasn't an orchestra there, they had steps that went down into the orchestra pit, and you'd walk across, and everybody'd bow, and I can't remember, I think the Pope was on stage, and then you went down through the orchestra pit, and one night I was coming on, and the 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 there was a train attached to this that weighed a ton because it was like heavy, heavy, like upholstered fabric. And it had two big hooks that hooked to my coat. And then there were two page boys that were like, you know, 10 years old that carried the end of the train, which was a mile and a half behind me. <laughs> and one night I felt one of the snaps broke and I just reached my hand up. And I, and I just walked across like this, holding the thing, and went down into the pit. And, and uh, I told them afterward, I said, the snap broke. And they said, well, you know, if that, I said, I don't know what it would have done if it came off. Well, they said, well, you would have snapped your fingers to the pages to pick this up. And you're the king. Well, I'm not thinking I'm the king in that sense. I'm thinking I'm supposed to walk across the stage. <laughs> I go downstairs and I probably would have bent over to pick it up myself and then the wig and the crown would have fallen off. And I mean, I, I look at those things and I just say every day, thank you, Lord, 
that that I, that never happens. And the, the other thing that I had to do in the show was, other than there was a lot of singing because we did um, like like uh, background music through the through the whole show, mm -hmm. and um, so uh, you you played all these different parts, and they because I was at that time nineteen, I guess I turned twenty by the time it opened. Tony Richardson gave me the part of playing this dead soldier at the end of nearly the end of the show. And they wheeled me out in this old wooden cart and I was lying on the cart and I had a rag shirt on all covered with blood so that you they couldn't see you breathing because it was, you know, all ruffled up. And and then they would before they would wheel me on, they would put red they took red lighting gel. And that's how they made the blood. They dipped the gel in the water and so it got all flimsy. And they had put it on my forehead and put a big wound and, and then run it down here and that. And and then they would they would wheel me out. And I had to be on stage for about 10 minutes while the the knight and Albert and by now Luther, uh, after the Reformation had taken place had this big scene over this dead peasant and and uh the beauty of it was i got a full page in, in one of the plays of me lying there dead but what what they didn't count on was the gel underneath the lights would start to dry when you were out there on the stage oh my god and you would feel it like such a crunching up healing right on your face and you couldn't you couldn't move, you couldn't itch it or scratch it or drink it because you were face up. You had to be a face up dead peasant. And that, and, and I did it for the whole run and and I never moved, but that was, that was actually probably the hardest challenge. Now that's discipline. That is true theater discipline. So when this show ended, um, did you, want to pursue a career as uh, as an actor, as an entertainer. Uh, when did the writing start? Because I know you started writing reviews uh, not long after that. Right. Well, what happened was I realized, you know, once that show was over, that um, there, there probably was not going to be a lot of call for countertenors. And, and uh, I don't know at that time what was going on with the Pro music or those people, but I had such fun because we did the Broadway show in two tours. But there was a, one of the other singers and I, just for our own amusement, when we would get to some cities, we would call a local place and we put together a little act. We were called the Saxons, and we sang um, comedy music, but like and folk music. And we would go, let's say, to a, a college dorm, and if we were playing a college, and entertain them for half an hour. When when the show was finally over, we thought maybe we could make money doing that, and we actually did that for about five years, and we we had incredible experiences. Um, we opened for people like Flip Wilson and Harry Nielsen, some of those people, and then we would play college concerts on our own. <laughs> we wanted to come into New York, but they said, well, you can't come in without original music. And that's when I, I really started writing 
which ended up to be the first show I ever did, which was called Hark with Bob Lorick, who did the lyrics and I did the music and I was in it. And um, and that we came in and the show got wonderful reviews. The, the producer was not very knowledgeable about marketing. So we just ran for a summer season, but it opened all the doors and all of a sudden I was a writer. And then one of the girls in the show was doing an industrial for Sports Illustrated. And usually you play out of town, but this was playing at the Time and Life building because I think they own Sports Illustrated mm -hmm. and their national sales meeting. And uh, so I, I went to see it just for the fun of seeing Elaine Petrikoff, who's now the president of AMDA. And uh, she said afterward to the guy, the producer there, she said, you know, this is my friend Dan, and he's a writer, and he wrote this and all this. And he said to me, um, Do you ever write, did you ever write an industrial? And I said, no, not really. He said, would you like to? I said, yeah. And he said, well, come to the office the next day or something. I went in, and they, they said, um, we've got a big industrial coming up. They were the pr production company that, you know, put together all these shows for all these companies. And they said, um, all of our writers are assigned. And if you want it, you can have it. It's for L'Oreal. And <coughs> excuse me, I'm, I'm just sympathizing with you. Um, you can get it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I went over and with Bob Lorick, and there was a stack of pictures and resumes on the guy's desk. And he said to me, he says, you see all these right here? He said, those are all people have written in to like audition to be writers. And I thought, so you know, as you can see, I, I have been very, very blessed without uh, actually fighting for it, you know. I mean, you know, it, it took five years to get there. But then when I did that, the people loved us. And um, so they would hire us for other shows. And the more I was writing, that led to when we did those greeting cards and of nuns, of the nuns, and that opened up for nonsense. And and then after that, I've just been in the, you know, the international business of nonsense. Uh, nuns, you know, I mean, were you uh, surprised at the initial? I mean, when nonsense first opened, right? Uh, did nonsense play outside of New York, or did it open off Broadway in New York? It opened off Broadway, but first what we did was, you know, we had made these greeting cards with Marilyn Farina, who was just a yes, friend. She was not, away. She, yeah, she was not an actress or anything. And um, she was a dental assistant. I did stock Ooh. with her, by the way. Pardon me? I did summer stock with Mar Marilyn. Oh, yeah. And she, she, yes. she, had, she had no plans to be an actor or anything. But I said, do you want to play a nun on a greeting card? And she said, sure. So we started the cards, which, you know, we were doing it for fun. And they just took off like wildfire. And they were selling everywhere. So we did that. And then we decided that we'd make up a story. And Marilyn would appear as Mother Superior in card stores and tell this story that the sisters had died. And she was selling cards to raise money for the burials. And it was always like, buy a card and bury a sister. And... And then I thought, well, maybe we could go further with it. 
And so Steve Hayes, who is a fabulous comedian. Oh, I love Steve. Lived down the street from me. And I guess we, we, we met at Fire Island because Steve was, and I said to Steve, I said, you know, he, he had a, this comedy material and stuff. And I said, do you think maybe like we could put some of your sketches in and this and make a little show and I had write some songs. And so we did that. And then Samina, who's later our fabulous amnesia, was the booker at the duplex. And the old duplex, the, what I say, the real duplex. Real duplex. Real duplex on Grove Street. And they, Steve said, well, maybe I could talk to her and get us in there. And they did. And we were supposed to be there four nights, I think, like two weekends or something. And we were there 38 weeks and packing the place. And that's when we like, we were just like, huh? You know, we couldn't did believe it. Just take, I mean, was it just word of mouth that was bringing the audiences in or did you get reviews right on or how were you able to I don't, I, don't, I don't even remember that we were reviewed there. Maybe we were, but I mean, at that time, you know, there wasn't internet and all that stuff in the, and, and people, people went out at night yeah, and they went and, you know, the duplex always had the cabaret upstairs. There was always something going on. And so I think that the word spread and basically it was word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to move it. And every producer said, no, no, it's just a cabaret show. So we worked on it and tried to do stuff and it, it didn't quite work and it didn't quite work. And finally a producer came in and said, because um, I had written a couple of things to hook it together. And it was quite risque, I will say, at the duplex. <laughs> and then they said, well, the one guy who was trying to direct it and that left and everybody kind of threw up their hands. And at, at one point, the director said, well, I think the problem is, you know, we had a priest, a brother and three nuns. And he said, the priest and the brother don't work. And the, and the sketches won't work in it if you're going to try to make this into a musical. So if if you want to do this, you're going to have to write it yourself. And there was a long behind the scenes saga, and I've always felt terrible about it, that um, the, John Hatchett, who was one of the guy and brother in the show, he had fallen off a slide and broken his leg. So um, he, he couldn't be in the show. And they said that they felt like that, you know, Steve's sketches going to work. And I, I tried to fight for him and they said, no, you, you, you try to write it and see what happens. And, and he never quite understood. And I think he felt, you know, so left out and so hurt by it. I've never really been able to sit down with him and say, this is what really happened. And um, because he, he is so wonderful and such a such an incredible comedian but his his comedy is risque mm -hmm. and and uh, so anyway that's when we we my even my agent said you know you've tried this and it's not working and people don't want it this way they don't want it that way and one of the girls in the show knew somebody at the Calhoun school up on uh, east west 74th street and they have a little 
90 seat theater that was approved equity showcase. And she knew the people and she asked if we could do it. And this is the, so this would be the new version with five nuns. And um, we went in there as a workshop for, for six weeks. And that's where it, it all came together. And, but every producer was like, no, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work and won't work out of town, won't work here, and nobody would take it. But the audiences were incredible. And we said, you know, how can we let this go? And they said, you know, and, and, and stop me when this gets, we're too far in the weeds. Um, but it's a fascinating story because the-, the oh, I love the story. The, um, the a stage manager said, well, you, I, you, why don't you produce it yourself? And I said, I don't know a thing about producing. And they said, well, all you got to do is get a good general manager and they'll tell you everything what you need to do. And all you got to do is raise the money. Just a small problem. That's all you have to do. Just raise the money. Raise the money. But you don't have to know anything about producing in the theater. So I said, okay, well, let's try it. And then I realized you know, I mean, I didn't know rich people. I still don't really care for rich people because they use too much silverware at dinner. And, <laughs> you know, I I, I, I said, um, you know, I, I don't know anybody called, but then I hit on this idea. I said, look, if, if this was a normal show, as Terry Gibson, one of our choreographers said, you must understand that nonsense and theater have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> And I said, if this was a normal show, I would be paid for writing, somebody would be paid for directing, and the producer would get his share. Well, if I'm producing it, I don't really need the producer's share because I'd be getting the, the writer's share anyway. Mm -hmm. So that would be my share. So what I decided to do was I would call people like, had, had I known you, I would call people and say, listen, I know maybe you can't you can't afford to put money in this right now, but if you can find somebody to put the money in, I will give you. I think the points. It was one hundred fifty thousand dollars we had to raise, and you know back in nineteen eighty five that was a million, and uh, Hello Dolly came in for two hundred thousand, you know, and so, um, I said, look, I think the points to get a point was $1,500. And <clears throat> all the complications are that whatever points the investors have, a producer has the same amount of points without putting money in. So I could give away mine. And so I would say, if you would find somebody, here's the deal. They'll buy, the, buy a point for $1,500 and I will give you a point for $1,500. So, you don't have to put in any money. All you got to do is be the one who would make the phone call and get somebody to do this. So, you know, everybody would say, well, I'll try, I'll try, you know. And and the, the topper was, I was friends with Andy Tobias, who some people may know as a big investment guru. Uh, and I knew him from, from the beach, but I didn't know him well enough to ask him. So one friend, I said, well, why don't we ask Andy to come and, and to see the show? 
And, and they said, oh, you know, Andy's Jewish and he probably won't like it. And he won't get it and all that. So I said, oh, okay. Well, then another friend who I'd known for a long time came to the show, unbeknownst to me, and brought Andy. And Andy watched it, watched the show. And afterward, he, he was talking to me. He said, you know, I love this. And he said, I love investing theater. And he said, I always need a write-off. And he said, so, you know, why don't you come over and I'll give you $15,000. So that really started the ball rolling because people were like, if, if Andy Tobias is giving us money. Um, so I went over to his apartment and we sat at the kitchen table. Like, you know, I was, I was buying some Tupperware and, and he just took out a little checkbook and he just wrote a check. And he said, before he wrote the money, he said, you know, I think I could use a $25,000 write-off. And he knew that um, my other friend Dan Critchett was going to get my share for the fifteen thousand. He said, "Well, then can, can I get a, can I get a finder's share because I found myself for the other ten thousand? I said, "Yes, you can have that." So Andy Tobias has written two books that talk about nonsense, and he said it's the best investment he ever made in his life. And um, but that's that's how it got going, and then. We had gotten, uh, Trey knew Roger Gindy. Uh, Trey was the, under, the uh, stage manager. Um, and Roger worked for Gatchel and Neufeld at, as a company manager for um, uh, the, the roller, Andrew Lloyd Webber's roller, the roller derby show. Um, what? Starlight Express. Yes, yes, Starlight Express. And, but, but Gatchel and Neufeld, both those guys were wonderful people and they said, they knew that Roger eventually would like to be a general manager. And they said, well, if you want to take this on as a side project, you know, you can use the office and, and you'll do your job as company manager. And, and that's how he came on board and did all the nonsenses with us right up until, you know, they've gotten taken over by uh, touring companies and stuff and local stuff. But, um, and, and, you know, it, it got his office going. Uh, once it became a success, and um, and in the beginning, um, this is one other story that goes with it. So we got the money, we opened, and we got nice reviews, but not the kind of reviews that said drop everything and go and see this immediately. So we knew that it had to be, you know, Aunt Mary saying to her niece, "Oh, the, we saw this show and it was so funny. You got to go see it." But we were in the Cherry Lane Theater because that was one of the theaters available. And we didn't, I never realized how important walk-up business was. And um, so every night the audiences were going crazy. We had people who come and say, we saw something on Broadway and this was twice as good. And uh, so right at, we were in there for like two or three months and <clears throat> we were actually operating below the stop line where they can kick you out. And they came to us and they said, we feel so terrible about this, but um, the Light Opera of Manhattan has offered to take a two-year lease on the theater. Guess what? Yeah. And that's how I made my uh, off-Broadway debut there at that theater. Look at that. <laughs> so so they, they said, we have to kick you out. And they said, we feel terrible. We know how you guys have struggled. So 
we borrowed $20,000 from one of the investors. And we said, you'll be the first to be paid back. Because Roger, again, talk about the angels watching over us. Roger overheard in the office of Gatchel Newfeld that Circle Wrap, which is now where the, I think it was the garage restaurant. I don't know if it's still called that. But Circle Rep was in trouble. And they wanted to rent out their theater for the rest of the season, which would have been like March till September. And we took our 20,000 and we moved to Circle Rep in Sheridan Square. And <laughs> when we were in Sheridan Square, Richard, the first night, we sold $2,500 in walk-up tickets. And wow. it was the first time I ever realized, and I'm telling everybody now, you got to be where you're visible unless you're the, the giant hit. And um, so, I, I, you know, the minute we got there in the middle of Sheridan Square, we were, we were everywhere with all those five streets coming in, you know. And then Variety came and did a wonderful piece on us. And then Stephen Holden, who was writing for the Times an article about three or four little off-Broadway shows that were so worth going to see. And after that, the sky was the limit. And uh, so um, we stayed there. And then when we had to move up, we had to leave in September. But by then, you know, we had some money in the bank. And we moved to the Fairbanks. And uh, we had two choices. We could go to the West Side Theater or we could go to the Fairbanks. And the Fairbanks was cheaper, but they said, if you do that, you're going to have to do a TV commercial. And that, that was what we decided to do. And then we were there for 10 years. I know, an amazing story. Well, each day, you know, if you watch the show, I pick a word of the day. And the word I picked for today is diligence because this is truly a story about diligence. And, uh, and if anyone comments with the word diligence, they will get a chance to win two comments to Ann Kittredge's show on October 23rd. Um, now, Ann Kittredge- Was a nun. Was a nun. And Ann called me this morning and said she would love to come on and speak to you, Dan. Oh my God. Oh my God! She has something that she wants to share with you. Oh, Danny, it is I, when I saw that on his on his on on Richard's um, email blast, which everyone should get on because Richard sends incredibly thorough and very easy to understand what shows you're going to want to see that week. So you should really sign on. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I haven't. I have to call him. Okay, do you remember this? Sure. Uh, Ah, how am I doing? Wait a minute. Okay, yeah. Just hold it up. Uh, just hold it in front of your face. Just, and then pull it up. Yes, that's good. Oh, yeah. But you know what? You have to read the writing to me. Okay. It's baking with the BVM. Oh, no. I knew that. But I mean, who is oh. who? Oh, so how do I have this? So I have this because, um, so when I was doing the show, my husband was actually um, working with Joe Abaldo, who did your casting. Right. And just so that you know, I don't know if you know this story, but I had just, I was a babe in the woods and I had just moved to New York. And when I got this job, 
Joe, um, I don't know who else was up for it, but Joe, uh, like said to me, he said, you don't deserve this. You haven't been here long enough. You haven't earned to get this job. And he wasn't really- it sounds gonna- like old Dan stories. I mean, Dan, he didn't know about Luther. Right. Dan Dogan story. Right. And it was like, oh, I'm sorry, Joe. <laughs> you know, but anyway, so so I think it was the fifth anniversary that you took us to the Russian Tea Room. Do you remember that? I do, I do with Dodie, right? Yes. And it was the first time I ever had soft shelled crab. <laughs> That's what I remember. Oh <laughs> but anyway, I don't remember what this was from exactly, but I think we gave it away. We gave it away as like a, a, a you know, a raffle or something. We sold it in the lobby. And oh, okay. Oh, okay. And you had to sign it because all the signatures are on there from the people. Oh, who showed yeah. it. So, um, so fast forward. 20, 30 years, 30 years, I think. Um, and uh, my husband now works for the Schubert organization and Jerry Schoenfeld's assistant, Gwen Pike, remembered my name from her getting this <laughs> when she saw nonsense 30 years prior. And she's told Bob, she's I think, I think your wife's name is on my, my cookbook, my nun cookbook. And so she gave it to me. I just thought that was adorable. <laughs> oh my God. You know, the, the stories that you run into as you go along the way, it, it really is amazing. And I think that, um, you know, you lose track of everybody who's been in it. And, and, oh, gosh. and, and I'm and, sure. And then, I mean, what else is really cool is to see you guys doing other things that were, like, I didn't realize, but um, Jen uh, Jen Perry, um, who was in the show, she was Hubert with Dodie and the two of them, oh my God, uh, at, at the time. And, and I didn't realize, we had lunch one day a couple of years ago, and she said, you know, you got me my equity card. And uh, um, and you know what else? And you you can appreciate this. You you know how word gets around how you are to work with and all this kind of thing. I remember when we were looking for an, a new understudy. The two people ended at, that were the last of the calls and all that were Terry Gibson, and do you remember there was the the, the coffee shop that was in front oh, of the show? You know that and. Yeah. They, always let the patrons go in there to the bathroom if the show was running because you had to walk across the front of the stage. So, um, there was a girl in there <coughs> who auditioned and she would have been perfect. She was heavy set and you thought, well, good, she can play different parts and stuff like that and she could dance. So we thought this is the perfect answer. And then we told Paul Botches, remember stage manager, Paul? Yes. Uh, who went from us to Stomp, who has never, ever been out of work, and he has had two shows. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. He's still there. But anyway, um, we said it's down to her and the Terry and the blonde girl. He said, you mean that one who works at the coffee shop? He said, oh, she is such a bitch. She said, they told us that we could always have free coffee. The owners told us that. And if you went in there, she'd be like, I am busy with my customers. I can't, you know, I can't take care of you right now. And we said, just like that, she was out. And we hired Terry. 
which in the end was great because Jerry turned out to be a choreographer and stage managed national tours and all of that. Like, like all of you guys became things that we never expected, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, and it is so funny. Like I'll see your name where, where you're doing something. I think, Oh my God, she's one of ours, you know? And you know, what's really crazy is um, I went to see, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember the name of it. So I'm going to be embarrassed, but I just recently saw a, a show off Broadway and who was outside during intermission, but Roger Gindy, he was the producer. Oh, Roger. I was like, Roger I haven't Roger. seen you for 30 years. Like, this is crazy. Right. <laughs> and I can't, I can't relate to the time hmm. that's gone by because I think I, I told I told somebody when Nonsense opened, um, as we would go along and do all these other shows and Felton originally and Terry and I putting together the shows and a lot of times our cast come with us or some, or you'd go and have the local cast like, you know, Chicago, we would did in Boston, Philadelphia. Um, and uh, when when we would we would do those shows, it was kind of like, you know, repeating the movie hmm. with different people. And it was, it was always fun. But I think I have never gotten past the age of when I did the first show. Hmm. Because when we do it now, it, it'll be like, it's the same thing. And, you know, how could I possibly be older, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like, I can't. I can't relate to it. And some of the stuff, I mean, Neil Simon said to my agent, and, and we're all kind of in this boat where he, he said, you know, all we can say is we were there when it was good. Uh, <laughs> because you know, Broadway's come so commercial and all this crap. And uh, Danny, I, mean, I have such fond memories. I, I have to tell you, and not even that, it's like I have such appreciation because really you were you were my first opportunity in New York and uh, even like, you know, uh, to this day, to this day, I think one of the things that helps me in my current career where a, a lot of what I do, um, you know, uh, a lot of it, you need to have a certain confidence in just dealing with the moment and not, you know, being scripted. Um, and so playing amnesia and doing that whole scene every night and not knowing what the audience was going to deliver and, and having to be present. I mean, you know, it was a little bit like being shot out of the cannon, but it was so exhilarating. It was really was exhilarating. I, I think that's that's so true because um, I tell people now, like in other cities, you know, when they're casting, I said, I tell you, if who you're looking at has ever done a cabaret show or, you know, a little solo act, they're going to be the best ones because, you know, they're used to that or even hecklers or whatever. They figured out how to handle that. And I know some people in the show, just kind of like, as you said, after they were doing it for a while, said, you know, this, I find auditioning so much easier because, you know, I've kind of been out there as myself so I can go in as myself. And I remember one time I was directing the show with Felton in Australia and the mother superior was a huge Australian star. And she had played Anna in the King and I, and I, her costumes were in a museum and all this stuff. And at one time, uh, you know, she was the perfect type. And and I said to her, 
I said, I said, Sheila, all you have to do is be yourself. And she said, oh, Danny, that's the one thing I can't do. It's not easy. <laughs> and, I thought, and one of the times the experiences where people really realize that you you become the character because each person brings something different. It's like you as a nun. And we were doing nonsense in Miami with Kay Ballard as Mother Spirit and Marsha Lewis was Hubert. And so anyway, Kay was a pretty sweet Mother Superior. And in those scenes where she'd have to say, you know, don't you blame me? You're the one who bought the blah 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 and all this. It would be kind of kind of sweet, and she'd say, "Well, it wasn't my fault. You know, I didn't realize." And blah blah blah. And then the company moved to Washington to the Ford Theater, and Peggy Cass became the Mother Superior with, with that company. But Marcia was still playing Hubert, and Peggy Cass was like full of piss and vinegar as that <laughs> Mother Superior, and. So when Mar uh, she she Marcia would say, you know, like, well, you're the one who you you know there were you're the one who bought the blah blah just you know very well I didn't realize that why are you blaming me and all, and Marcia was like she came to me and she said I feel like I'm in another play <laughs> and oh. saying the very same lines and I said that really is the trick I said because it's you as a nun not not. There is no Dolly Levi who is a person that you're going to try somehow to recreate a character. And 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 I've always said to people, does anybody know that Dolly Levi was Irish? Her name was Gallagher. <laughs> so um, we're going to run out of time. I mean, I want to have you back, Dan, for a part two. But I want to ask you, Anne, you in this show you played you you were the understudy or swing mm -hmm. um how many of the nuns did you stand by for and uh how often were you going on and was it easy to transition from the different characters uh in a show such as this yeah this is such an ensemble piece yes well i started as an understudy and i understudied three i understood sister robert ann sister leo and sister amnesia and I went on for all of them. And then I left for a while. And then I came back for a while to do Sister Amnesia. And then I left for a while and I came back for a while and did Sister Leo, which I'm sure the only reason I was there for Sister Leo is because you guys were desperate. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it was a blast. It was an absolute blast. And I have, I can't even tell you how many stories. I have so many stories from that time you know, because it was so special to me. It was my first, you know, a real job in New York. Um, and uh, and believe it or not, I use those stories in my cabaret show, in my in my show coming up. I have a story about about nonsense in it because so many, so many, uh, just so many things happened during that time. It was a very vibrant time. It wasn't vibrant on Broadway at the time. Like you said, it really wasn't. But man, that show was so hot. <laughs> really was and 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 i think as i say <clears throat> none of us expected it and the funny thing is you know when we went philadelphia was the first place we went uh, <laughs> and it was just early on after the show had opened and somebody said <clears throat> excuse me um 
way early on. Well, it's playing in New York, but it'll never play out of town. And we go to Philadelphia, Felton and I, and audiences are fabulous. And then comes opening night. We have the opening night. We did not get one good review. And Pete Sanders, one of them said, uh, you know, it looks like it started in somebody's basement and it should have stayed there. And we thought, well, I guess everybody was right. You know, it won't work out of town. And I remember Pete Sanders, he was there in our press. He saw Felton and me outside of his hotel window with the paper. We were standing on a corner and reading it. I can remember we both said, well, we don't need this. And we threw it in the trash. And he remembers it. And that show ran 10 years in Philadelphia because the the word of mouth was instant. And, uh, you know, it, it just went like crazy. Because And then we realized, people said, you know what? This is going to play anywhere. And uh, and it kind of has. <laughs> well, I want to ask you, we, I, there's so many questions I want to ask. We're going to, uh, we have gone over already, but I want to ask, number one, when did the celebrities start jumping on board and becoming part of this family that you've created? Uh, and without naming names, was there one particular holy grail nun that you went after that just did not miss, uh, that missed the mark? And don't mention any names. Well, I'm going to have to mention one because I don't have anything bad to say about them. Okay. One. Okay. And, you know, when they'll say, well, which one was your favorite? Everybody had different strengths, you know. I mean, we're very few people. The funny thing is, I, we used to say to the casting people, we say, well, do you want stars or do you want talent? <laughs> because so many stars came from another area that there was something else they couldn't do. Either they could be really funny and not sing very well, or they sang great, but they weren't funny. But they sold tickets. And the the way it started, um, the, the first star that was actually hired was Kay Ballard for Florida. That was the first star company for, um, I forget the name of the theater because it got blown down in a hurricane. But it... Uh, and, uh, 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 it was famous. Uh, <coughs> Chan Walls Theater. No, 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 no. This okay. this was in uh, um, what, what's the name of the? It's a, a real quaint place that's down a little south of Miami. Um, oh, why can't I think of this? You know, here at Shady Pines, if you don't, you just no. hang on to it all. But anyway, before that, I got a call from a little theater in Virginia. And they said, we want to get the license. Well, at the time, Nonsense was with Samuel French. And French li licensed the show in um, uh, hierarchy. So no community theaters could get it because it was still playing in big, those big, bigger theaters. And so they said, I said, well, I'm really sorry. But, you know, they, they said, if you, if you do it, uh, you know, you'll mess up the whole thing. And yeah, I said, the only way maybe I could get them to do it was if you if you had a star, they might say that that was the reason they allowed the license. And they said, well, how would Pat Carroll be? I said, Pat Carroll will get you the license. And she did it because the people who ran the theater were old friends of hers. 
and she was down there hanging out in the, like the farmhouse that went with the theater. And I had nothing to do with the show itself, but I went down to see it, and that's where I met Pat. Mm -hmm. Then the next one was Kay, and and then um, I think probably Dodie. That was the first national tour, and um, so then local not what, what you'd call local theaters, like the Marriott Lincolnshire in Chicago, and those people used to do runs, you know, that were six months long. They started hiring hiring stars. Like when we got, Burt Reynolds Theater was the one that hired Alice Coastley. Mm -hmm. And we had Alice and Beth Fowler and uh, um, Carol Burnett's daughter. And uh, I can't remember all the rest. Oh, Ruth Williamson was at me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, um, and then, uh, who was the other one? Anyway. Um, that's when when people started hiring hiring these different different stars, and now we've had I think we counted one day there were like thirty eight people that you knew, and you know we had Phyllis Diller, we had Rue McClanahan, we had uh, just tons of these uh, of these stars, and even one that I didn't direct, but Michelle Nichols uh, Uhuru from yes. Star was wow. much superior in depth. Wow. I have one last question to ask you. And when did the nonsense Amen come about? Whose idea was that? And that took off. People asked to do it a lot. And we always said no because I felt like it could be offensive and it could really hurt the stock and amateur rights. Mm -hmm. And then they got permission to do it in Brazil, in Portuguese. And it's called Novisa Sebelgis. And it ran for seven years. And I went down to do press with them. And the audience was going crazy. And we said, wouldn't it be fun to bring this to New York and just do it for like a month? And uh, they, they came and they, they paid. They rented the St. Clement's Theater. And we did it for a month in, in Portuguese, nonsense, amen. And of course, a lot of people like yourself who, who knew about, about nonsense just came to check it out. And they sort of knew what the people were saying, you know, because they knew the script. And they went crazy. They said, you got to do it. You got to do it. And that's when I said, in New York, I said, if we do it and we do it as great comic actors, bringing these characters to life, not a drag show, not anything like that. You really were going to portray these characters. And in fact, lately for um, the advertising, they'll say Mrs. Doubtfire has joined the convent. Because I said, you know, it had to be that kind of creating a character like Robin Williams did, mm -hmm. where you believe. And we took it, you know, and it just took off like crazy. And we had, we had to wait the longest time for the review. And we thought the ad agency kept saying, well, it's, the guy probably hated it, and the New York Times is trying to be kind to you, so they're holding it back and holding it back. Well, finally it came out. It was fabulous. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. You know, the whole thing is that this is no drag show. These guys are so talented, and, and they really were amazing. And uh, so um, that, and then we thought, okay. And we try to say, obviously, we can't control it all. But when people do it, we say, listen, this is this is how it should be done 
and uh, and now it plays all over the place. And we have Greg Luganis with Sister Robert Ann in one. Artie Johnson was Mother Superior. <laughs> it was, you know, we would try to <clears throat> tailor it to them, which was really fun also. Well, bring it back. I'm ready to be, play the Mother Superior. So, uh, <laughs> anyway. Yes, with Anne. Uh, so, anyway, I, you know, uh, I know that three people have commented with diligence. I want to say that if you're not in New York and you cannot attend Anne's show, she will give away her CD, Reimagine, which is, Dan, you've got to have a copy of this CD. If yeah. You're it is absolutely incredible. Uh, one of my favorite CDs. Uh, if nothing, uh, I know that Ron Spivak is, uh, he commented that he actually did the editing at Samuel French for Nonsense. Uh, and uh, he is in rehearsal right now uh, with uh, Steve Ross. And speaking of Steve Ross, Anne and Steve do a phenomenal Edelweiss. Uh, speak, you know, uh, see, it's all about nuns. Uh, Edelweiss uh, on her CD. So uh, and he's also a special guest at the show. And he's a special guest at your upcoming show. Yeah. So if you're not going to be in New York and you still want to enter, uh, you can still do that. Um, and uh, I want to give you each a, a, a chance to say your closing remarks. So you still have a chance to, do, uh, to put that in. And if you want it before Natasha Lombardi, I know that you've already won a copy. What you can do, as I always say, Go to uh, today, let's say uh, the number that I'm going to pull out is eight. Go to the eighth name on your friends list and send them a copy of Anne's uh, CD. So uh, just to uh, give everyone a little chance to uh, add into that, I'm going to have a little fun with you, Dan. So I'm going to ask you three random questions that I haven't even looked at yet. So the first question is, what stereotype do you completely live up to? My myself? Yes. Oh my God. What stereotype? Just someone who doesn't follow any rules. Well, that That's works for me. I be. I don't I I I don't follow any rules. In fact, many times I resent them. But I'm I'm a hundred percent for common sense. That and sounds great. And that's hard to find sometimes. Now, I've got a statement, and it says, as I take on new challenges, I feel calm, confident, and powerful. So I want to ask you, I mean, you've had such success with nonsense. Um, when was the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone and created something that really took you by surprise? The, the most frightening thing I had ever done in all these years <clears throat> and it makes no sense. We were doing nonsense in Portland, Maine, uh, in a, a conjunction with the Maine State Theater. And Victoria uh, um, Crandall, who originally ran the Maine State Theater, put money in nonsense. And so now, Kurt Dale Clark, who runs it, said, we're, we're doing a big benefit. And um, we we would love to have you come over because these different stars are coming and they're singing the songs that they did in the, I might've been their 50th anniversary or something, but we've never had a writer. And because of the connection with Victoria Crandall and nonsense, it would be great if you would come and talk. So I thought at first this was like maybe, you know, 
casual thing. I've talked to audiences of a thousand people after a show, and it's so perfectly easy for me. And I can go out and just sit in the chair and just talk. But this, I had like a three or four minute speech that I was to give. And I had to stick to it fairly closely because it was all timed and they had all these stars. And so I said, well, first of all, I found out it was super formal. Kurt was in a white tie and tails. And, and I said, I haven't got anything like that up here. I said, I can wear my brother's habit if you want. Oh, that'd be great. So Mary Stout was ahead of me singing. Oh, Mary. And oh, there Mary. were, when all these stars were here, and I found out when I got there, they were all going like, oh, damn it. Eight of them had been in nonsense. And, <laughs> and it came my time. It was the first time in years that this was not my show. And I had to walk out to the center stage in a single spotlight that was so bright you couldn't even see the conductor and nothing to hold on to, hand mic and give this speech. I was so petrified. I have not ever remembered being that scared in my life. And I walked out and I thought, if I move my feet, I'm gonna fall in the pit. I was so, I don't think anybody knew it. And I saw a picture of me up there talking. I thought, oh, he looked pretty cool. I was terrified the whole time. And when I walked off, and then it turned out they had a matinee and an evening benefit. And when I told Mary, she said, oh, honey, I feel so terrible for you. And you would think after I did it the first time and got through it, I could do it the second time with no problem. And, and I was just as terrified. And when I came off the second time, but I think it was because I had never had, to, I didn't have to stick with the script word for word or anything, but you know, they had figured it out. So when I was coming on, when I was going off and I couldn't go out there and say like, I would at my own show where it'd be like, Hey, did y'all have a good time? You know, it was to come out. And my, my first thing was, I said, Kurt told me that this was formal. So I just want you to all appreciate the war, the big beads. And, you know, I, I guess they laughed, but I don't remember anything. I was so scared. And and it, it all went fine. And I went off and I did the second time, went fine. But I, I told Mary after, I cannot remember a time. And there have been plenty of times when I've been nervous. I'm always nervous when I go on television. I mean, even sitting here coming to talk to you, it's it's like, oh, this is television. It's going to start, you know. And, and uh, um but nothing like that. And and also, it's like a friend of mine said, well, of course you can go out after your show, you've been pre-validated. And, and, you know, people aren't gonna stay and listen to you if they didn't like the show. And, um, but it, like I say, it's my, my show and I'm in charge and all this. And here I was, you know, just a speaker uh, as part of this celebration. And so that was, that was my scariest time. It's like like we were talking and being myself and not be in a way not being allowed to be yourself because you know you couldn't fall out of this line and I, I like I say I can just remember my feet feeling like that just if I took one step while I was talking it, I was I was going over the edge wow. and so that's my scared story okay and I also pulled this card uh, it's from a negotiation deck and it's called Let Them Sit. I'm gonna read this card and then I'm gonna ask my question. It says, make yourself bigger 
in a negotiation and how it works. Uh, when uh, persuading a person, have them sit down while you're standing. If you're the one sitting down, take up as much space as you can because this signals confidence. When have you been the most confident in a negotiation situation in your career? Um, probably doing the first television special, which of course I actually knew nothing. <laughs> But I was very confident. Well, in fact, before that, when we did the first national tour, American American uh, theater was the only um, touring people in the business. They they covered every theater, and even some of the people in the in the offices were shocked when Tom Mallow, who was the head, decided they were going to do nonsense, and. Um, of course, we were all thrilled, and we were playing huge touring theaters. We we would play six weeks at a time in in a city, and that was when Dodie was the star. But um, the their producing partner was, uh, I think it was Pace Theatrical or something from Houston. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they said was, "Well, you can't start with people going in the audience. You've got to start with a big opening number because that's just how Broadway shows start." And I said, no, we're not doing that. And I said, listen, we know how this should. No, no, you got to do this. And finally, I talked to Tom Mallow. And I said to him, let us try it this way because I know this works. And this is the way we break through the audience. The audience learns that this is happening in real time. The show is happening in real time. So whatever happens, happens. And they become immediately a part of it. And so they said, okay. So we were trying out in in Vermont, and uh, it was a big theater, the Flynn Theater, I think it was called. And they they actually wrote it off because Nonsense had been playing all summer at St. Michael's Playhouse in Winooski, Vermont. And they said, you know, they've probably all seen it. So we're not counting on a big crowd. Well, it sold out clean the entire week. And the first night, people were coming in and said to Tom Mallow, oh my gosh, this is the fifth time we've seen this show. We can't wait to see it in this big theater. And that, after that, all you could see was dollar signs in the producer's eyes. But the, um, the I, I just decided that I just had to stand my ground because I knew that was what made this show work. And, and I told the cast, I said, listen, I went to school in a 600 uh, student high school. And that's how big the auditorium was. My cousins went to Cooley High School in Detroit, and the auditorium had 2,500 seats because that's how many people were in the school. I said, we're in a 2,500-seat theater. This is your big school. This is just like you're working in my cousin's school, and it's yours. And we would send understudy nuns to the balcony who also appeared in the show. And they'd holler down from the balcony, everything you'd never do in the theater. Like you'd hear a big laugh up in the balcony at, at the beginning before the show even started. And one of the nuns down below is just, what's going on up there? <laughs> and she'd say, well, I just tell a joke. And they said, well, tell it to everybody. And she'd come to the balcony rail, holler it down to the people downstairs. And everybody was, you know laughing and they'd go around like and as you remember you know they would take gum from somebody and that kind of thing 
And so the whole audience was involved. And after that night, there was never a question. They just, they just went with it. And the funny thing was, and they can't do this anymore, I'm told, Tom Mallow had such control over all these theaters across the nation. Um, we toured for two years that they said they couldn't have Les Mis unless they took nonsense as part of their season. Les Mis, many places, even if it sold out, it couldn't make the nut. Right. And nonsense subsidized Les Mis because our show was taking in like 300,000 a week and it cost 90,000 to run. Wow. Nuts. <clears throat> but again, with that show, we included everybody. If we went out to dinner, we took the truckers, we took the bus driver, everybody. And it was always one big family that stuck together and supported each other. So there was never one of those things of, no, no, the union won't let you do that. It's like, where do you need help? Oh, okay. And, uh, but that, that was probably the one time when I, I really stood my ground and said, this is the way it's going to be. And, and I, I, you know, I didn't have that much experience, and, uh, and, but that was it. So we're going to give away, uh, hopefully, two tickets to Anne's show, and we'll see who our winner is. Thank you all for being here. I see three of my friends. Aaron Caleb. And Aaron is our sponsor for the week. So, Aaron, thank you so much. See what happens. Uh, and uh, Anne, uh do you and Aaron know each other? No, I don't oh, know. You in touch with each other, so that will uh, happen. That uh, so I'm going to remove this. I'm going to say my closing remarks, and then I'm going to let Anne say her closing remarks about her experience with nonsense, and then Dan, you will have the final word today. Uh, and don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. You can talk about anything that we talked about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with today. Uh, Dan, I am so glad we finally got around to doing this. Like I said, we could do a week of stories about nonsense. Uh, and I just love you so much. I'm, I've loved you from the very beginning. And like I said, my name Danny's first date was nonsense. There you go. It's been there for our, our whole lives um, together. Uh, so thank you all for being here today. Um, I said it before and I will say it again. And I know I can speak for Dan and Ann when I say, Dan and Ann, when I say this, in this business, we don't take it lightly when you show up. So thank you for being here. Also, it's great to have great sponsors like Aaron. Thank you, Aaron and Kurt Peterson. Go see him tonight if you're able to go see him. I wish I could be there, uh, but I can't. Um, for the sake of everyone in the audience, I can't be there tonight. Uh, but uh, advertising is great, but word of mouth is even better. Oh, yeah. It comes to, you know, Dan has proved it. I mean, that show, this show took off because people went out and talked about it. If you've heard Ann's show, if you've seen Ann's show, if you've listened to a CD, um, it's not enough just to pop it in your CD player or let it play on your streaming device. Tell other people about it. Because if you're not talking about it, the work that we do is, you know, we're just putting it out into the stratosphere. So it's important you go out and you talk about this and talk about uh, the show, share this with your friends. 
Um, as I say with every show, go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything return. Go to your Facebook friends list and the eighth name that pops up, reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Uh, we see all this outpouring of love when someone passes away. And I go, back it up for a few weeks. Wouldn't it have been nice if they could have seen that on Facebook? And if I know you can't do that with everybody, but if you take one person each day to do that with, you make a big difference in their lives and the lives of the world that we're living in. Um, and we all have to send out positive thoughts, especially these days. So after the show, please leave a comment on YouTube. Share this with your friends and tell others about the show. Um, as my dear friend John Moniger says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. <laughs> I'm going to leave. And Anne, it's all yours. And uh, much success on your uh, upcoming show, Anne. And uh, you've got the, uh, it, the stage. It's yours. Well, listen, I had no expectation I was going to be on today. Uh, I literally just responded to uh, Richard's email. I was so excited to see, Dan, that you were going to be doing this. And uh, But when he offered, I was like, okay, this is a chance for me to, you know, just let you know how much I appreciate you. We totally lost touch. Uh, you are an important memory in my life. And I just want you to know that I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels great appreciation for you over the years. And I wish you the best and, you know, just take really good care. That's Thank it. You. you too. It was so great to see you. Yeah, I think the, the, the thing that is most rewarding about nonsense for me is that it makes people laugh. People say, don't you love hearing your music? And it's wonderful. But when you hear an audience laugh and feel that you are a part of making that happen, it's, it's the most rewarding thing in the world. And one of my favorite reviews came from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And they said, if it's true that laughter cures all ills, nonsense will make doctors abs uh, obsolete. And that's kind of the goal of the show to just make you feel better that day than when you came in and walk out with a smile. So I hope everybody finds something to smile about today. I, I certainly have great smiles with this show and, and seeing Anne. So good luck to everybody and thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.